Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. All right, at this time, I want to invite you to find a Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, of course, you can just listen in, or you can pull it up on uh, your phone or your computer, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Really the second half of verse 5, but Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 5. So, as a church, we are wondering what it would look like Uh, to move from a bunker mentality to a greenhouse mentality. A bunker mentality is only concerned with, with mere survival. But a greenhouse mentality is open to growth. It's open to growth even in the hardest of times. Now we might think growth is impossible these days, uh, but in Galatians 5, Paul gives us an encouraging picture. He compares the church to a grove of trees or possibly even a vineyard. And because of the Holy Spirit, and because we're connected to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, his people do not just survive in hard times, but they grow. That's an encouraging picture. Paul calls this growth fruit of the Spirit. And this fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we're focusing on a different area of growth each Sunday, if you're just joining in. Today, we're focusing on peace. And to do this, I want to look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 5. This is God's word. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In the God of peace, will be with you. Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts, no matter where we're at, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would you make your word alive to us so that we would not just learn new information, but that we could see Jesus and be transformed by him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this past week I was helping my oldest son with his math and he was stumped with a problem, and so he brought it to me, and, and I too was stumped, which, which is a humbling thing when we're talking about fourth grade math, but this is happening to all of us, I think. Um, and so I told him to keep thinking, to keep solving, to keep trying, and then eventually he found the solution. And what did I do? Well, I saw this great opportunity to drop some dad wisdom on my son, and I said something like, Okay, see, son, if you think hard enough about the problem, you will solve it. Which is actually great advice, I think, for math problems, but pretty terrible advice for most of the other problems that we encounter in life. See, 
I tend to view peace, which we just read about, as a math problem. I think peace is a solution that I can achieve through mental effort. Do you know what I mean? Um, If I just think hard enough about my problems, I will solve them, and then I can have peace. Uh, Some have called this rumination. Uh, The word comes from the digestive process of cows, okay? They don't have stomachs like humans. Their food goes straight into what's called the rumen, the rumen. And then after that food is broken down a bit in the rumen, it becomes cud, and they belch it back up, and they chew on it some more. And that's so often how I process my problems. I chew on them. I swallow them. I belch them back up. I chew on them. I swallow them. I belch them back up and so on and so on and so on. And what's worse is that I think that peace lies on the other side of this process. That if I just chew hard enough, I will digest the problem away and have peace. Now, I'm pretty sure that we all do this, but maybe in different ways. Uh, We think peace is something we can manufacture. Isn't that true? I mean, it may be through thinking, like me, uh, if you just think hard enough, if you re-roll the game tapes enough times, you'll find the answer. Or if you search the internet, or if you read six books on the subject, you will have peace. Or maybe for you, it's not thinking, but doing uh, you do things to build peace. If, if the house is clean, if the yard is perfect, if I just say the right thing or if I just type the perfect email, if I eat the right thing or exercise the right way, I will have peace. Or maybe for you it's not doing, but it's avoiding. If I just ignore this hard thing, I will have peace. Maybe a Netflix binge is what I need. Maybe a couple drinks is what I need. And so we get really good at avoiding hard things in order to have peace. In all of these ways, and I'm sure there's so many more, we are trying to manufacture and build peace. But let's be honest, it never works. If anything, it makes the problem worse. And so God has been so gracious to me to lay before me this passage this past week. Because in this passage, God reminds me that real peace is completely different than what I settle for and often what I fight for. I see it in three different ways and I want to look at each in turn. First thing in this passage tells me about real peace, about God's peace, is that it's personal. Real peace is personal. It's not some vague sort of state of well-being, but it's relational. Being in relationship primarily and beginning with God. So notice in verse 6 how Paul frames peace, the peace of God. And then in verse 9, when you look down, we see the God of peace. Now, I love this. As an English major, this is a sandwich. The, The peace of God and the God of peace. It's a sandwich. God is in the middle, as if to say peace does not exist apart from God and apart from relationship with God. It's the peace of God. It's the God of peace, which is an amazing thing. The word in that phrase, the peace of God, is, is an amazing phrase, and it can be understood in two different ways. First, the peace of God is the peace that God himself has. 
the peace of God. Scholar F.F. Bruce puts it this way, the serenity in which he lives. God isn't upset. He isn't stressed right now. And God gives us a taste of his peace when we are in relationship to him. Um, If you've ever been around a non-anxious person, it's contagious, isn't it? Think about it. In fact, there's an entire philosophy of leadership built around this principle, that when leaders are non-anxious, the group's anxiety tends to lower. And that is so true with God. God alone is peace. And so we find a measure of true peace when, when he is at the center of our lives. When we bow, not just our knees, but our hearts to God, who is peace. So the peace of God is the peace that God has, but the peace of God is also the peace that God gives. In the garden, we had peace with God, but our parents turned against God. And ever since, we have had strain and we have had static with God because of sin. Because of sin. In fact, Paul says that we are natural born enemies with God. And so how can we regain personal peace with God? Well, we need, to, we need our sin to be taken care of. Uh, Paul tells us how in Romans, in another letter, Chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified is a courtroom term. To be justified is to be declared not guilty in a court of law. And to be justified, therefore, by God means that God's final verdict over you and over me and all who are trusting in Jesus is not Guilty. It's pronounced today and forever. That's what it means to be justified. Now, this isn't because of things that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. His life of perfect obedience for our life of rebellion and sin. His death in our place. And when we lay hold of Jesus and we let go of our own efforts and we lay hold of Jesus and we confess our need to him, when we lay hold of him with empty hands, desperate empty hands, desperate sinful empty hands of faith, according to Paul, we are declared not guilty. And that gives us peace with God, he says. Real peace. See, real peace. Peace is personal. It's connected to relationship. And primarily relationship with the God of the universe. We can have peace with the God of the universe, with our maker, the Holy One, through Jesus. Years ago, I heard someone talk about how he couldn't enjoy the beach with his family because he spent the whole time trying to prevent sand from getting onto the towels. Um, peace for him was a towel with no sand on it. And I can totally relate. I'm not throwing him under the bus because that, that person is essentially me. When he told this story, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm glad there's two of us out there. But that is impersonal peace. I'll call that the, the sort of no sand towel peace approach. Like if we can just keep the sand off the towel, life will be fine. But real peace, as we see here, is the peace of God. It's, an, it's, it's a personal peace, not an impersonal peace, where we sort of try to arrange our life in a certain way and avoid certain things in order to have rest. No, it's profoundly relational and 
personal. When we stand before God without any condemnation, when we stand before God as sons and daughters, loved and beloved, this is a place, Paul says, of undeserved blessing. And when we let that sink into our heart, we have peace. We have friendship with God. And this is the pathway, therefore, to true and lasting peace. True peace is personal. It's not a problem to solve. And so when you're feeling troubled, and there's lots to feel troubled about today, the first thing we do is we get personal, okay? Get personal. We draw near to the person of Jesus, not the propositional truths about Jesus, though those are important. We draw near to the person of Jesus. And we remind ourselves that Jesus is not a theory, but, a, but our Savior and our friend who won for us the peace of God. Get personal. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He did not, I do not give to you as the world gives, Jesus says. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus says those words. So receive them. Receive them personally. Real peace is personal. But real peace is also protective. We see it in this text. Paul says in verse 7, take a look. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A few things about this promise. Well, the first thing is this. This is a ruthless protection. A ruthless protection. The word guard is a military word in Paul's day. Bible scholar Lynn Cohick writes, such language calls to mind the precision in fighting techniques, the discipline and ruthlessness, hang on to that word, of the Roman military machine. Paul was writing this letter to Philippi, which was guarded ruthlessly by Roman soldiers. Paul was writing from jail. He wrote this letter not only to Philippi, but he wrote it from jail, guarded by a Roman soldier. And so I like imagining him looking at his guard, who is by his side at all times. And I like thinking of him seeing a fitting illustration of the peace of God. To the extent that he is guarded by this soldier and likely chained to him, to that same extent and more, he is guarded by the peace of God. Paul is subverting and flipping this image on its head and reminding the Philippian believers that the peace of God is ruthlessly guarding them. It's an amazing promise. It's a ruthless protection. It's also a comprehensive protection. He says that this peace will guard our hearts and our minds. And the heart in the ancient world was basically thought of as a control center of the human. It was their emotions. It's where their emotions were centered in. It's where their will, their, their, their decision-making abilities was located in. And the mind, as he uses the word mind, that encompassed all of our thoughts and all of our planning. So Paul is essentially just saying, he's not getting too technical here. He's basically just saying all of you, your entire person, your whole interior life is being guarded and protected and garrisoned by the peace of God. 
And this is a gracious protection. He says this peace surpasses all understanding. In fact, one translation says this peace exceeds anything we can understand. This means that we can't manufacture this peace. This means that we can't imitate this peace. This means that we can't even understand this peace. So what do we do? What do we do? We receive it. It's a gracious gift. It's a gracious gift. Our family, we were not surprised, but we were super bummed to find out that our Grandview pool is an opening this summer. Pools have been a part of my life since I was a, a small kid. I took lifeguarding classes in high school, and it was my summer job all through high school. And so to this day, whenever we go to the pool, I have trouble actually relaxing because I'm always imagining what could go wrong, not just with my own kids, but with basically everybody there. I have this sort of hyper-aware lifeguard mentality that I can never get rid of. I see collisions before they're happening. I see people struggling to swim, even if they're not. I want to tell kids to stop running. Yeah, I'm, I'm becoming that guy. This hyper-awareness is what lifeguards do. And so when I think about the peace of God, it comforts me to know that God's peace is like a hyper-aware lifeguard who protects my life, who protects me, and who protects my inner life. His peace is protective. And then finally, I see this uh, peace of God as presence. It's not a problem to solve. It's presence. It's actually the presence of God himself. This passage is bookended by two phrases. We started in verse 5, and then in verse 9 we see this. Paul says we have more than the peace of God. We actually have the God of peace with us. And in verse 5, towards the end of, the, of that verse, he begins this entire passage with this line. The Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near, is the other way that could be described. This isn't a throwaway line, and many people think it has nothing to do with what Paul says later. I think it has everything to do with what Paul says later about peace. He, in fact, begins this whole passage on peace with the, with the statement, with the fact, with the gospel fact that the Lord is at hand. Now, what does Paul mean when he says this? Does he mean the Lord is near with regard to time? I mean, is he near in the same way that we expect visitors or a pizza delivery person? Or does Paul mean that the Lord is near in terms of location, like how our family is very near to us right now uh, because we're all shut into the same house? Uh, I honestly think Paul designed this phrase to have both in mind. The Lord is near in terms of time. He is coming to right all wrongs. And this kind of nearness brings peace. Because we can have an eternal perspective on our problems. And we can have trust that Jesus will come and make all wrong things right again. We don't have to carry these anxieties that Paul's going to talk about here in a second. We don't have to carry them. We don't have to solve them because the Lord is near. But I also think the Lord is near in terms of location in this text. The Lord is near to us by the Spirit. Paul says that we are in Christ Jesus in this text. And that the God of peace will draw near and will be with us. And so I think we can have peace because God is near in both of those cases. 
Whenever uh, my kids are scared, Josie and I, we, we hardly ever say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's nothing. Instead, we say, who is with you always? We ask a question. And we, and we always remind them that Jesus is with them always. We avoid diminishing the object of their fear. Instead, we, we sort of exalt the object of their faith. We avoid diminishing the object of the fear. Instead, we place their, their fear in the context of the presence of Jesus. This world is scary. This world is full of sad things and terrible things. And we're not going to orient them towards reality by saying there's nothing sad or scary about the world. What we do want to do is orient them to the reality that in all things and in all circumstances, Jesus is with us. And he's coming back to make all things right. The peace of God is not the absence of hardship, the absence of sand on our towel, so much as it is the presence of Jesus. Rankin Wilborn, pastor in California, he suggests that we begin each morning by changing the pronouns of our internal dialogue. So instead of waking up and immediately thinking in our brains, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this done? How am I going to make it through this day? Say instead, how are we going to do this? And of course, that's a prayer right away when you change the pronouns. You're inviting Jesus and, you're, and, and you, are, um, you are by faith confessing that Jesus is with you in every moment of this day coming forward. And so how are we going to get through this day? And immediately, whenever I do this, my blood pressure just goes down. Why? Because I'm claiming this promise. I'm claiming this promise that Paul tells us that the Lord is near and that we are never alone. Never. God's peace is way better than a math problem to solve. It's personal, it's protective, and it's God's own presence. Now, if we don't access this piece by way of a math problem, how can we experience this piece? Well, Paul invites you to access this piece with three things, praying, pondering, and practicing. And these things could be an entire sermon or even an entire sermon series by themselves. But let me just say a few things about each as Paul unpacks them, starting with praying. Starting with praying. First, Paul invites us into what I will call pivoting prayer. In verse 6, Paul tells us to pivot your anxious thoughts to prayers. So instead of self-talk, which tends to go nowhere, uh, we pivot into God talk. We have his ear. I've said it before. One of the ways I obey this verse is often by just adding two words to my self-talk. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. And when you do that, you're pivoting your anxious thoughts into prayer. Second, Paul invites us into what I think Richard Foster calls small prayer. So we have pivot prayers and we have small prayers. Paul says in verse 6, in everything, in everything we pray. Now, this means in every situation. It doesn't mean at every single moment, but in every situation. And so we can go to him in every situation of our day. Sometimes we should go to God in long sessions of prayer. But most of the time, I think we can carry on a dialogue with God throughout our day. 
Uh, like how my wife talks to her mom. Uh, sometimes it's a long conversation into the night. Most of the time, it's through short texts and short phone calls. And the same can be true of God. Like we can, we can go before Him with long sessions of prayer, and we can also have short prayers. And when we pivot our anxious thoughts to prayer, that's what we're doing. I like these examples from John McKinley. God, I'm feeling disconnected from you right now. That's a short prayer. God, I'm enjoying this pizza right now. God, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this day feeling so tired. God, what are you even doing in my life right now? God, I'm discouraged and I have little to look forward to today. God, give me desire to do this homework assignment. God, I don't want to fold this laundry. God, my kids want to stay for two more hours, but I'm exhausted. Help me to be here for them. God, I'm willing to be made more willing for the stuff that you want me. God, I can't get to sleep. Help me, Jesus. These are short prayers. And then third, Paul says, with thanksgiving. Now, of course, we all know that research is catching up with the Bible here. Just do a Google search on gratitude and you'll see what I mean. But what Paul is saying is more than just thanks. It's, it's thank you. It's a personal thanksgiving. It's a thank you and that you is God. And we're invited here to notice the things that we're grateful for. And this builds trust and builds faithfulness into our hearts. And so that's praying. That's praying. Uh, and then in verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is so helpful to me. It's an invitation to stop ruminating and to start pondering. Jesus, who embodies this verse, I mean, who is honorable, who is true, who is just, who is pure, who is lovely? Jesus is. And then things that point us to Jesus. It's an invitation to ponder those things. And then in verse 9, Paul tells us not to just ponder these things, but to practice these things. So what we do is we find people who look like Jesus, who look like verse 8, or who point us to things that are in verse 8, and we ask them for mentoring. We rub shoulders with them. Imitation, in other words, is inevitable. And so we choose our heroes wisely, starting, of course, with Jesus our Savior. And so I want to ask as a church here to close, what would happen to, to, our, uh, to not just our own souls and our own sense of internal well-being if God grew this in us, but what would happen to our families and to our marriages and to our communities if God grew this fruit on our tree? Because remember, we grow the fruit piece not for ourselves ultimately, but for others. Ever since God called to himself Abram, called him Abraham, he said, I will bless you, why? To be a blessing to others. We are a grove of trees growing fruit so that we can bless the people in our lives. And so I just want to ask, and I want you to ask yourself, what would it look like if God grew this fruit of peace in our life? Well, the peace we have with God will enable us to pursue what Paul calls the things of peace with others. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual 
upbuilding. So peace, friends, is better than just inner harmony. It's relational flourishing too. It's God's desire to grow that in us today. So I hope this encourages you this morning. It's been essential for me. Listen, peace is not a problem to solve. Peace, friends, is a person. It's a person. Peace is a person. And so we lay down our schemes. We lay down all of the ways we are trying to manufacture peace. We stop. We lay down all those efforts. I mean, we can even turn this passage into an effort to manufacture peace. What do we do instead? We go to Jesus. We, re- we receive Jesus. We rest in Jesus. We receive his peace. We praise God for these pathways of peace. We, we, we begin talking to God, not as a, as a burden, but as a privilege. We begin pondering Jesus, worshiping him in our thoughts. And we begin practicing these things. Again, not to earn God's love, but because we have it. And so let's go to Jesus now. Lord, we need you. We are so tired of trying to manufacture peace on our own. Not just internal peace, but peace with others. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us your peace. You promised to give it to your disciples. So, Lord, we we claim that promise now and we come to you. Repenting of our self-saving, self-peacemaking schemes. And now we receive it from you, Lord. Would you grant it to us? Would it be a blessing to our spouses? Would it be a blessing to our children? Would be a blessing to our neighbors and our colleagues and our co-workers. The peace you give us, would it spill into the lives of others? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.